course again, every hour, on the hour, huffing and puffing. Look, Doctor, I know science comes first, but that thing is ridiculous. For six hours straight, every hour on the hour. Listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Brooklyn Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Leonard Laudenau, who will talk about his book *Feynman's Rainbow*. Also, we'll find out how an iron takes out the wrinkles. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week coming right up here on Brooklyn Rocks. Brooklyn Rocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty awesome, actually. Is that right? Why is yeah, that? Yeah, I started off the week with a bang, got a pass into the uh, the Apple Developer Conference. Ah, uh, the Apple Developers Conference. Right. That's always fun. Right. Heard uh, Steve Jobs give his two-hour spiel. Steve Jobs, uh, he's always quite the uh, entertainer. The entertainer, the impresario, I guess. <laughs> so you put on quite a show, then. Yeah. yeah, there were a number of new uh, products coming out. A couple of them really stand out is probably the new Power Mac. Oh, the big Power Mac. Yeah, the new one. So they're coming out with a G5 chip, which is the next generation, succeeding the G4 that's currently being used right now. So uh, in his tests, he showed that they were able to beat the best PCs by up to uh, two and a half times their speed. Okay, wow, yeah, that's quite impressive. Yeah, especially like uh, photo rendering and some of those movie-type applications. So when are those things going to be out? I think they're going to ship September 1st, but you can uh, start ordering them from the Apple Store. Yeah, and they also have a new operating system or an upgrade from the previous one. It has a number of interesting features. The most impressive was this thing called Exposé. So apparently, if you have tons of windows open, you can use like a shortcut, be able to see them all at the same time, or see only certain applications, or just see the desktop. Oh, I see. So it's like making some of the windows transparent and others not. Yeah, well, actually, it uh, redisplays them into small formats, and some of them light up, some of them go into the background, and you can identify the ones you want, and then mm-hmm. you can go to, from one to another very easily. Okay, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, and then they also have the much improved video conferencing software in their iChat program. They also have uh, come with accessories, like video camera, tested one of them out, had a conference with someone in Cupertino. Very okay. smooth, very smooth quality. So it's not the sort of blurring, uh, you get the pictures updated every three minutes, that kind of thing? No, it, it seemed like it was real time. Pretty soon we could do the show uh, on a conference, I guess. I suppose so. So uh, if anyone wants to know more, just go to the Apple website, and there's tons of info there. Alrighty then, Frank. So what's the longest trip you've ever taken? 
think it was Europe, the Mediterranean Sea. Well, how long did that take? About 16 hours. What if it took about five years? Five years. Wow. You mean I have to walk it or swim it? <laughs> you might just have to. Or you could take the long route around the sun. Around the sun? I heard the gas is cheap over there. I guess. Hydrogen economy, you know. It can't get much cheaper, in fact, than going around the sun. But it turns out with that we have uh, this craft called Nozomi. Which Isn't that the bullet train? It may be the same name as the bullet train. Uh-huh. Uh, the satellite was launched around 1998. Right. But it hasn't gotten to Mars yet. It's supposed to have been there quite some time ago. So what happened? Well, it basically missed a number of the important swing bys. Okay, the gravitational assist, huh? Right, but they've sort of miscalculated. Oh. As a result, they've missed uh, Mars several times, or at least their opportunity for Mars. So basically, they've been detouring around the sun a couple times, and now they're finally on their way to the Mars. Wow. So can we sue the sun or some, something <laughs> for liability? You know, the sun has pretty good lawyers, so I don't know if we get much out of it. <laughs> yeah, it burns, too. <laughs> But it's not been a total loss because they've used the uh, the opportunity to learn more about the interplanetary magnetic field, interstellar helium, all these other sort of things. Ah, oh, serendipity. It's also big for other nations as well because it's an international project, and all these nations have a lot of projects on these this particular spacecraft. Right. So certainly good news right now for Nozomi. Keep your heads up, and we'll see what happens. And if anyone's interested in learning more about this, you can see this on the recent edition of Science Now. Okay, well, here's something from out of the solar system. Out of the solar system. And into the galaxy. So scientists believe there's evidence that there's a second black hole in the middle of the Milky Way's heart. I thought it was a combination of, like, several black holes in the middle there. Well, conventional wisdom is there's at least one black hole in the center of every galaxy. Uh Uh-huh. But now they think there could be a smaller one that's orbiting around this massive black hole and eventually it'll fall into it. Okay, I see. This is quite interesting. It explains the mystery of why the, uh, the center of the galaxy is so large or so monstrous. The theory they have is that every million or year or so, a small black hole falls into the big black hole, and it just gets bigger and bigger. And as it's doing that, it also drags a lot of stars and material into it. I see. So this study was carried out by Brad Hansen at UCLA and Milo Miloslovich at the California Institute of Technology. So what they predict is the monstrous black hole is about 3 million times the weight of the sun, and the smaller ones are between 1,000 and 10,000. And um, this sort of explains some of the mysteries of how the galaxies form at the center. So they think that this is sort of the natural galactic evolution. Yeah, it could be, a, all these black it could holes be something that's happening on a you know a million year time scale. Something we won't see every day, but a galaxy is on the order of what of ten billion years. So of course in that time a lot of these small black holes will fall in and over, you know, ten billion years or years it'll really grow to a big size. So if you want to find out more about that. Just go to the current issue of New Scientist. All right, so Frank, do you like your sugar highs? My sugar highs? Uh, all the time. I think you're on one now, aren't you? Yeah, and coffee and... Uh... <laughs> Some amphetamines would help, too, as well. Uh, well, it turns out that the body's response to excess sugar is to raise your insulin level. The insulin level? Isn't that good? It's good in the short term, but it turns out that insulin, it can be a master regulator hormone of a lot of other processes. Okay. So one of the interesting things is that insulin could also contribute to Alzheimer's disease. 
So are they suggesting that having these highs and lows are bad for you? or? Well, no. Actually, what they're suggesting is that in Alzheimer's disease, there's a particular type of protein called the beta amyloid protein. Uh-huh. And this is something that builds up in the brain. And these, so It's like a plaque, right? It's a plaque, and it, it's sort of linked to Alzheimer's disease because ah, you find this right. in Alzheimer's patients. Uh, well, it's known that uh, an enzyme called insulin-degrading enzyme clears both insulin and beta amyloid. Oh. So this is an enzyme that clears away insulin and beta amyloid. Okay. So the idea is that if you have too much insulin, especially in older people, maybe they're using up too much of their insulin-degrading hormone, and it's basically chewing up the insulin and not chewing up the beta amyloid. Oh. And as a result, the beta amyloid builds up. Uh-huh. So having too much insulin then leads to the formation of these plaques and Alzheimer's. More good stuff for your zone diet, I guess, huh? <laughs> That's right. In case you don't know about it, the zone, as many of you people have been following, I used to be 3,000 pounds. Like a massive black hole, right? Yes, I it was like a massive black hole at the center of our galaxy till the zone died, and now... You're just a hole. I'm, <laughs> among other things. But, uh, yeah, so it's a big thing. Uh, neurolog- this was reported in the recent edition of Neurology, and uh, you can check it out, 24th June edition. Yusha Kaveza. And that's all for our look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Coming up next, Leonard Blondell will join us to discuss his new book, Feynman's Rainbow, a search for beauty in physics and in everyday life. So stay tuned. FM, KALX. Well, the life and times of the Nobel Prize winning physicist Richard Feynman have been well documented in the news media as well as the popular science literature. Yet, lost in many of the accounts of Feynman and other scientists are the depictions of their humanity and the stories of their inspirations. Indeed, it is their fundamental human quality that may have propelled them to their insightful discoveries. Well, joining us today to discuss the life and times of Richard Feynman is Leonard Mladenow. Leonard Mladenow received his Ph.D. from the University of California at Berkeley. He was a postdoc at the California Institute of Technology and an Alexander von Humboldt fellow uh, before becoming a writer in Hollywood for Star Trek The Next Generation and other hit television series. His first book, Euclid's Widow, a critically acclaimed history of geometry, has been translated into eight languages. And he is the author of Feynman's Rainbow, a search for beauty in physics and everyday life. Dr. Mladenow, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Gronks. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, well, you wrote a very uh, fascinating book, Feynman's Rainbow, which has been described, I saw, by some as a cross between uh, Einstein's Dreams and Tuesdays with Maury. I'm, I'm just curious if you can explain a little bit about your book here. Sure. <laughs> I thought that was an amusing description. Um, <laughs> 
Well, after I did my Ph.D. thesis at Berkeley, it got a lot of attention, and it, it landed me this, this great job at Caltech, a place that I thought was populated by geniuses. Based on the people who had been there, Linus Pauling, Einstein, the Richter scale wasn't invented there. I mean, it was a bit scary to go there and think it was just little old me. And when I got there, I... Um, I was a little bit frozen with panic, I think. Interestingly, that's something that happened to Feynman many years ago, too, early in his career, after he had done the Feynman diagrams and thought, will I ever do anything else good? And I started um, looking for a problem, really probably looking a little too hard, trying to find the next quick success. And Feynman had been my idol in physics and the guy who got me into physics. And so the book is the story of my first year there and my interactions with him. He was dying of cancer at the time. And I think thinking back a lot on his life and also uh, trying to figure out what to do with what was left of it. And we had a lot of conversations and interactions as I was searching for what to do with my life. And um, the interesting thing is that uh, when I got there, I, I viewed him as a fellow who, uh, with all his accomplishments, he was, I think, probably one of the biggest physicists of the century. He, most people, if they don't know him from physics, they know him because he was a scientist on the Space Shuttle Challenger Commission who figured out that it was the O-ring that was the problem. He dunked it into the ice water and slammed it on the table to demonstrate that. But when I got there, I thought that all his accomplishments would be foremost on his mind. And I'll tell you a little story that kind of summarizes uh, his attitude. Mm -hmm. There was another student there who told him that he went into physics because of Feynman and that he thought physics was everything. And Feynman wrote this kid's mother a letter and said, Dear Mrs. So-and-so, physics isn't everything. Love is. And I think that summarizes his, his views. He was very down-to-earth and really had a good handle on good instincts and intuition on, on what life is about. And I, I learned from him. Uh, I was wondering if you could explain maybe a little bit of those dealings you had with him. In well, for instance, uh, when one, the book really tells a story, and, and um, in one of the scenes, uh, I'm standing uh, looking at a rainbow with him and start talking about what causes a rainbow and the legends behind the rainbow. And he tells me the only legend that he knows is that uh, there's a pot of gold at each end of it and only a, only a nude man can reach it. <laughs> and so we laughed about that a little bit, and he sent me to Murray, Murray Gelman, the inventor of quarks, who had the office next door to me. To, to find out a more encyclopedic explanation of the rainbow because Murray basically knew everything and loved to tell you about it. Hmm. So we kept talking about it and, and um, mentioned to Feynman that Descartes, uh, I remember Descartes had come up with the theory of the rainbow and talked about technically what it was. And he asked me, What's, what do you think was his inspiration for the theory of the rainbow? And I said, oh, I think it was the fact that you could mathematically treat each little droplet out in the sky as a, uh, separately and then add it all up to see what the effect is. And he patiently listened to me and then he said, you know, I don't think that was it at all. I think what inspired Descartes was that he thought rainbows were beautiful. And, you know, what he was telling me was that let beauty drive you and let do physics if you, if you are in awe of nature and want to understand it and, and don't get lost in your equations. That was really one of his main messages. And, and do you feel that this sort of helped you, I guess, in your future? Yeah, well, I think it helps everybody. See, it's not just for physicists. These lessons that, about what life is about, that you should follow your passions if you're lucky enough to have the opportunity and, and follow your instincts and don't do things because it's expected of you or, or the definition of success, but do them because you want to do them. I think that, that was a good message for me, especially at that stage in my life. Um, it was another interesting story is that he, he was telling me about his first wife, Arlene, who was his childhood sweetheart. And they were married, and she died when they were both in their 20s. She died of tuberculosis. And I think as he was dying, he was thinking a lot more about his life and her death. And one day he told me that he had found real happiness with her. And so after that, he didn't really need to have any more. And I was just floored because I'm thinking, mm -hmm. here's the guy who has a Nobel Prize and has had such an effect on physics and is worshipped by so many people. Yet this is what's important to him. It was a good lesson. How would you contrast Feynman's attitude for life and science with perhaps some of the other physicists that you had met? For instance, well, in the book, I talk about... Uh, well, I. 
what Feynman talked about, which is uh, he, he divided physicists into two types, of Babylonians and Greeks. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, my earlier book, Euclid's Window, I, I wrote about that because I wrote about the invention of mathematics straight through to um, curved space. And in the beginning was with the Babylonians and the Greeks. The Babylonians were very good at calculating and, and doing simple algebra, and they did it for very practical reasons to figure out how much tax, property tax to charge or uh, to use it in commerce. And they didn't really care if their methods were correct or incorrect as long as they gave roughly the right answer close enough, uh, as they say, for government work. <laughs> and the Greeks, on the other hand, um, cared about proof, logic, and that things should follow in an uh, airtight, definitive way from each other and that mathematics is a structure. So those are two approaches, uh, and the Greeks are usually credited with inventing mathematics because that's more the spirit of mathematics. But in, in physics, there's two types of physicists. There's the, the kinds who are very close to observations and to experiments and, the, and to the phenomena, and then there are the others who are inspired by the beauty and the elegance of the, of the theory and the mathematics behind it. And interestingly, at Caltech, we had Feynman, who was, I think, very Babylonian, and, and Murray, who was, um, who was more Greek. Um, not that Murray, um, uh, not that Murray ignored experiments, but he, for instance, his famous contribution was a very beautiful um, group theoretical explanation, elegant mathematical explanation of of where um, a lot, a large number of particles come from, how they come from a very small number, and in a way that's reminiscent of Mendeleev's periodic table, except mm-hmm. with um, more difficult mathematics. Mm-hmm. And that was Murray. He was very um, elegant in his math. And, and, and Feynman's big, biggest or first contribution with his Feynman diagrams, for instance, uh, was, was not proven at all. It was mathematically rather a curious thing and not understood. And he took a lot of heat for that when he first proposed it um, because it was, seemed to be hand-waving kind of intuitive arguments that people didn't, didn't want to accept. Mm-hmm. So that's the differences in approach. Now, Feynman, when he came up with his theory, could do calculations that took people um, months. He could do them in hours. So eventually, they, you know, all the all the old guard had to pay attention. And Freeman, a guy named Freeman Dyson uh, showed how you could derive his method uh, mathematically. But his approach was very intuitive and close to the facts, just like his approach to life was very down to earth. I mean, when you met Feynman, he, he could have been a, a cab driver from Brooklyn. I thought. So you know, he he taught me and showed me that there that physics is art, and physicists are like artists. And there's romance in physics. It's come, you have an aesthetic sense. You have passion. It takes creativity and imagination, and that's what a lot of people outside of physics don't realize, and even inside, if, you're, if you get too close and too focused on your success, you forget that. So uh, do you think you've sort of adopted more of his, I guess, outlook on life? Yeah, with? yeah, I, I have, and, and he gave me a lot of encouragement. Um, uh, I remember focusing so much on my success that I was reading books on uh, how to be creative, and one book told the story of uh, an ape, and the psychologist, this was around the time Einstein was uh, trying to invent general relativity, psychologist would put this ape's food outside the cage and the ape had to reach through the bars to, to pull it toward him and he put it outside the reach of the ape and the ape had to figure out how to use a stick which he knew how to use in the cage he had to figure out he could stick it outside the cage and pull the stuff toward him and he discovered that and i took that as a lesson um and i said you see I, this shows me how to solve problems in physics you take two things that are known but not related and you, and you find a new use for them it's kind of like the post-its you know and, and it's obvious later but it's a big discovery right. and he said you know i think psychology is a bunch of crap but what this story tells me is if an ape can do it so can you <laughs> So, you know, he, he encouraged me and, and taught me a lot, and there are lessons that stayed with me. I think they're lessons that apply to all of life. Well, you, you sort of took a, a different path after uh, Caltech and went into television writing, it seems. Well, um, one of the things I was doing while I was at Caltech was, was writing. I've always written since I was about eight, and uh, when I got the job, uh, <laughs> after being up in Berkeley, and I'm going now to Southern California, you know, mm-hmm. and everyone's saying, oh, you're going down there? You know, do you really want to go down there? <laughs> 
<laughs> and I thought, well, it's Hollywood. I'm going to stop writing my short stories and I'll write a screenplay. Mm-hmm. And I, I did that, and I had to do it surreptitiously because it would, would have brought so much um, scorn upon me, or so I thought, you know, because in physics people are pretty focused on the physics or uh, they can be snobby um, about what subjects that you're, you know, you're interested in. And, mm-hmm. and I think that uh, Hollywood writing would be pretty far down on the list. <laughs> But one of the things Feynman taught me was not to care, you know, what other people think, and helped me um, liberate myself to be able to, to do that. And eventually, I, I, I did finish the screenplay and wrote for about eight years in Hollywood for Star Trek and MacGyver, and even the, the old Gary Shandling show, a whole bunch of shows, mm-hmm. and had had some fun doing it. And uh, you know, I didn't worry if some of my old physics colleagues uh, looked down their nose at it, you know. And I kept doing physics on the weekends while I was doing that. So <laughs> that's like- part of the story is how I discovered myself and found that I could do those things and. Actually, related to that, it's the story of the beginnings of string theory because there was a fellow there, John Schwartz, who was the really the force behind string theory surviving for about 12 years when people thought it was garbage and people were laughing at him and heaping ridicule upon him. And he took the same attitude and the same approach that, uh, you know, he believed in it and he thought it was beautiful and he was going to work on it, whatever people thought. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of an interesting um, subplot in the book. And it's interesting that Feynman was actually very skeptical about string theory because it wasn't close to the phenomenon. It predicted extra dimensions and things that Feynman had a hard time buying. But Murray was the secret uh, supporter of uh, Schwartz there and kept him there because he saw the beauty and the mathematics and the potential of it. It was a very exciting time, uh, interesting time to be there. Wow. We're running a little bit out of time, but I'm just curious, why did you decide to uh, compile the, the notes he made with Feynman and put them in a book? And Well, I was really so um, impressed with my talks with him, that I, uh, and, I, and I knew that I, you know, back then that I, I loved to write, that I thought someday I might want to write something about him. He wasn't known very much outside of physics at that, at that time. It was before his books of anecdotes came out and before the space shuttle, and it was just a few years before he died, and I thought I would want to write about it sometime, and then I didn't do anything for 20 years, but... <laughs> After I went through Hollywood and did some other stuff, made computer games for a while, and then I decided I wanted to um, write books, I thought this would be a good book to write. So after Euclid's Window worked and I had fun writing it, I, I decided to write this one. Well, it, Fe- Feynman's Rainbow. <laughs> it certainly is. I mean, it's a, it's a great book, and I, I hope all of our uh, readers will go out and get it. Thank uh, you. I appreciate our, it. You can get it on Amazon.com or in any bookstore. I'm sure in Berkeley. I hear Cody's has it. So Yeah, I'm sure Cody's will have it. Rush down and get it if you're there. Uh, well, Dr. Milan, now, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks. Well, thanks, Charles. I had fun. And you were just listening to Dr. Leonard Milan now discussing his book, Feynman's Rainbow, A Search for Beauty in Physics and in Everyday Life. You're listening to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Coming up next, you can find out how does an iron get out those wrinkles. So stay tuned. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? And what's on the other side? Rainbows are visions, but only illusions and rainbows have nothing to hide so we've been told and some choose to believe it I know they're wrong wait and see someday we'll find it the rainbow connection the lovers the dreamers and That every wish would be heard and answered When wished on the morning star Somebody thought of that And so 
Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, have you ever wondered how an iron can get out those wrinkles? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science. Did you ever wonder how an iron gets the wrinkles out of clothes? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. To answer this rather pressing question, let's get an inside look at this 100% cotton shirt. If you look around, you'll notice that this shirt is filled with cotton fibers, and every fiber is made up of long chains of cellulose molecules. Let's get even closer. From this microscopic viewpoint, you can see that every molecule that makes up the fibers that make up this cotton shirt is surrounded by thousands of sticky threads. It's because of these threads that one molecule is able to stick to another, and another, and another, until they form rows of long molecular chains that make up cotton fibers. Say this shirt were to become wrinkled. See, all those chains of molecules would become wrinkled, too. Luckily, all it takes to straighten this messy molecular situation out is a hot steam iron. Watch. As the steam from the iron penetrates the fabric's fibers, those molecular bonds start to swell. Add the heat from the iron, and those swollen bonds snap. When the iron is lifted and all that heat and steam is removed, the molecular chains have a chance to reform, this time in a much more orderly and unwrinkled fashion. Well, I guess we ironed out today's science question. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, Making Science Make Sense. 
You think I'd get my youthful appearance back if she ironed my skin? <laughs> iron particular parts of my body would be very nice, in fact. Make it flat. Make it flat and <laughs> make it all supple. You know we like you, Everyday Science Lady. And now we have the crazy Scotsman with the answer to last week's question of the week. Hey, that's right there, Frank! It's the crazy Scotsman! Hey! Ah, you want to know the answer to last week's question of the week, don't you? Don't you? Yeah, you do, right? Well, it's the quasars. What are they? And do they really work? Hey, they're in that turning around, they're running around, spewing out radio waves. And what are they? They collapse stars and they're crowned with such a spin on them that they're spewing out radio waves. Perhaps they're the outputs of black holes, but no one really knows. And that's what a quasar Okay, and now here is Tokyo Q with this week's question of the week. You know that what the photon is, but do you know what's the phonon? If you know the answer or just think you know the answer, email us at groks at hotmail.com. You want to win anything, but you might know how it sounds. And that is all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here on Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel.